0: Brian, your book is about the IRA from the early 20th century right up until the present. Can we talk about one IRA for the whole 20th century? I think we can talk about
1: one central idea, the idea of physical force being necessary to liberate Ireland from British imperialism. I think that's common to the IRA in in all its guises um, or varieties throughout the the 20th century into the 21st century. But of course the organisation has undergone... It, depending on the context that it operated in, depending on the kind of people it recruited, um, the eras that it uh, existed in, I think you look at things like social class, regional differences, the differences between North and South, the IRA has changed over the years, When I mean, again I only thought... In some cases, the IRA traces its origins back to the Irish Volunteers, Ogluck and the but the Irish Volunteers weren't set up with the express aim of liberating Ireland by force. They had a much more, in some ways, contradictory aim of, of defending Home Rule if it was introduced. Even though there were people within them who were Republicans, they weren't set up as an exclusively Republican military force. And then the term IRA is used after 1916, doesn't become more widespread until a little bit later on. But even if you look at what the IRA says about itself, on some occasions in the 1980s, you have people like Danny Morrison saying that the IRA is a northern phenomenon, that it exists to fight for the rights of northern nationalists. In other cases, the IRA itself in 1986 saying that we don't draw our legitimacy from... The first doll or the second doll. We draw our legitimacy from the resistance to Britain throughout history, from the Fenians, the Young Irelanders, the United Irishmen, right back. So, even in the IRA's own terms, I think you mightn't
0: get a straight answer as to what exactly it's always been. The IRA theology, possibly not all of the IRA members held this, was that they were the government of Ireland. After the Civil War, the government of Ireland was vested in the IRA Army Council. Is that really a central idea. A much bigger idea
1: in the Civil War is that the Republic is being defended by the IRA, that the Republic exists um, and that the Republic has existed since 1916 and that it's it's being overthrown by a British-inspired counter-revolution and that the IRA are its defenders. In terms of who the actual government are, how much it matters to a lot of members of the IRA, I'm not entirely sure a lot of the time because... Right throughout its history, you have this mixture of, on the one hand, what seems to be dogmatic adherence to a principle. This is the Republic. We defend it. Anything else is completely wrong. We don't recognise courts. We don't recognise the police. We refuse to recognise the state. On the other hand, as early as 1924-25, you have people in the IRA like Frank Aiken and others who are prepared to talk about, well, you you might be able to enter Leinster House if there wasn't an oath of Allegiance, or maybe you could work certain ways politically. So you always have this kind of mixture between what seems to be very dogmatic, on the other hand, can be very flexible, often, you know, in the same people. By the late 1930s, when the IRA is a much smaller organisation, when it eventually decides that the power of the remaining members of the second Dáil is to be vested in the Army Council, it's really to give some kind of legitimacy to Sean Russell's campaign in Britain I think. I think he feels that you couldn't declare war on Britain unless you had governmental powers. To. In the 50s you know the IRA doesn't talk about that as much. I know it's it's there all the time in, as a kind of a, an idea but when they're concentrating on partition and the need to reunite Ireland by force they don't seem to go on about that as much and it becomes into play again in the late 60s when there's the provisional official split. Provisionals claim that this gives them some sort of legitimacy again. I think like a lot of these ideas in a particular context, it can seem very important, but in a lot of the day-to-day life of the IRA, much more ordinary factors are much more vital, whether that be fighting the Free State, whether it's taking on the British Army in the 1970s, whatever. I think obviously the vast majority of IRA volunteers post-1970 were in reality not very concerned about whether or not the second
0: all had the right to pass on power to the Army Council. So the IRA was more of a fluid idea than sometimes given credit for What really was the IRA, or is the IRA? Is it an army? Is it a political party? Is it a secret society even? Well, it always kind of rejected the idea that it
1: was a secret society, which I think is one of the reasons why people are surprised there's so much documentary material that the IRA produces itself and and that it does record its activities to a great extent. It did see itself as an army and always has seen itself as an army, as the army of the Irish Republic. It operated like a political party, often. Certainly in the late 20s and in the early 1930s, an awful lot of IRA volunteers' activities would have been those that you would expect a member of a political party to do. IRA volunteers were expected to put up posters, advertising rallies. They were expected, after 1932, for a while to canvass in elections for free to fall. They were expected to steward election rallies. They would have taken part in political protests and pickets and demonstrations. At IRA parades and at IRA training in the 19, late 20s and early 30s, they would have listened to political speeches and lectures on Toglock, the IRA's journal, mm-hmm. as well as military instruction. It would have contained an article on politics. So even though they certainly often had a disdain publicly for politics or for what they saw as, as compromising, conventional politics in reality the IRA often operated as a political party and again in the 60s what the IRA leadership wanted their volunteers to do was to become more involved in it was certainly left-wing political activity but it was conventional political activity to some extent is you know sit-ins protests canvassing what we would associate probably with a campaigning left-wing party now but it's actually members of the IRA who are doing it and they're doing it under orders which does again of course suggest a difference that ultimately Uh, Unlike a political party,
0: members of the IRA do have
1: to answer to a military body and they therefore do act under orders in a way that, again, conventional political
0: activists usually don't. Obviously the IRA is a nationalist organisation, Irish Republican, which in a narrow sense just means establishment of an Irish Republic. But the IRA has also been a bottle that's been filled with many different wines. I mean, they've been very left-wing, they've been quite right-wing. Can you talk about something about that, about how the IRA has evolved ideologically over the years. And of course, there would be IRA
1: members who would utterly reject the idea of nationalism, say, we're not nationalists at all. In 1918, a nationalist was a supporter of the Home Rule Party, You know, and a separatist or a Republican was the supporter of the idea of a republic. Huge amounts written on this, you look at what the republic meant in 1918, 1919, it meant whatever you wanted it to mean. If you were left-wing, it could mean that you wanted a workers' republic, but you could equally be a right-wing Catholic and want a republic, and that's why the Republican movement is genuinely a broad, popular mass movement in those years. It does contain all sorts of people with contradictory ideas, and that's why you have, on the one hand, labourers believing that the republic offers some kind of social justice. And you have people who reject the idea that it should have any economic policy at all. What they really mean is that the status quo is going to remain in place. But that does reflect the fact that it is popular. And what you tend to find, within the IRA at least, is that political shifts come in response to defeat or stalemate. So when the civil war is lost, the classic case is Liam Mellows. Liam Mellows begins to argue in prison. He's looking at what the Communist Party are saying in the Workers' Republic newspaper. He's probably also talking to Padre O'Donnell, who's in jail with him, and he begins to argue, you know, back to tone. The men have no property. We've got to examine social issues. But Mellis is doing that when he's in prison. He isn't talking about that when he's when he's campaigning in 1921. And post Civil War, people like O'Donnell, George Gilmore, others on the left of the IRA, do gain an audience because they are able to explain the defeat. For a lot of Irish Republicans, betrayal is always down to personal fault. Mm-hmm. Michael Collins was a great leader until he went to London and then he was corrupted by wine and women or whatever. Whereas at least O'Donnell and Gilmore will say no it's, it's actually, it's, it's more than that. It's people like Collins didn't have any concept of the kind of republic they wanted or mm-hmm. he was taken in by Griffith who had a very conservative idea of, of what he wanted. So at least in response to defeat sometimes you come up with a more political explanation or an explanation that is often from the left based around the idea that the, the working class or the small farmers or the labourers are betrayed by a middle-class leadership. And that becomes quite influential in the IRA in the late 20s and in the 30s. And when I was looking at Moss Toomey, for example, what struck me about Moss Toomey, who's chief of staff from 26 to 36, is that he was always written off as this kind of right-wing, apolitical militarist. We actually look at what Toomey's writing in on Foblock and what he's saying in the IRA's internal discussions, is that he doesn't call himself a socialist, but he's quite open to what the socialists are saying because it's involving the IRA in land disputes and in strikes talking about politics and i think he once says he says people think we're soldiers we're not soldiers we're revolutionaries this does become quite a popular idea and i think it does bring them some results in the late 20s you know and early 30s particularly when the great depression hits there are a lot of younger men who are either out of work or, or looking for some kind of response and the ira provides a forum for that when that declines then there's often a reversion to militarism this politics got us into trouble all this talking has only divided us. Why did we split? We split because you started talking about politics. What do we all agree on? We agree on the need to free Ireland. Right, how are we going to free it? By military force. We all agree on that. Let's do it then. And that sometimes can be a cover for a more conservative or right-wing ideology. One of the most controversial aspects of the, the IRA's history is, is say, the late 30s and under Russell the links with Nazi Germany. And again, I think thats it's a complex affair, but there are people in the IRA in the late 30s who've been influenced by the wider kind of right-wing drift in European politics and who do think that some form of corporate estate or some form of Christian social policy is what they'd have called it at different times might be good for Ireland. But a lot of the time the prevailing idea is that when all else fails, what we agree on is military force to free Ireland, so let's stick to that. And often the political reevaluations come in the wake of defeats or stalemates. So post-1962 again, you have the IRA leadership, Cahill Goulding and others, looking back at the 30s, looking back at people like Padre O'Donnell and George Gilmore, saying unless you win the support of the people,
0: you're not going to get a success. There's a strain of thinking in Ireland, in nationalist Ireland, that says that the IRA is a malignant thing, it's an anti-democratic force that there are people with guns who want to impose their will on the majority. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fair?
1: No, I don't think it's fair. The dominant view in Irish historiography, and sometimes people don't get this from the outside, is that when you have a lot of debates about revisionism, for example, you have people who say, well, most Irish historians are unionists, and most they're sorry that the British ever left, and they think the IRA is terrible. Actually, most Irish historians are, if you want to put a term on it, are free states historians or pro-treaty historians, they, they don't reject the War of Independence at all. For example, people like Tom Garvin, who's a very strong defender, his book 1922, The Birth of Irish Democracy, in many ways, is the classic argument that the anti-treaty IRA do represent fascism in Ireland. But he, for example, argues that a war against the British was inevitable, a rebellion was inevitable. If it didn't happen in 1916, it would have happened in 1918 or 1919, that the British weren't going to concede what they conceded without some form of violence. People like Ronan Fanning, Michael Laffin and others, I think, would argue that as well but where it stops is that in 1921 the majority of Irish people did accept the state mm-hmm. and post 1921 then those who reject the state are anti-democratic it's more complicated than that because the, the IRA in 1921, 1922 would have made an argument and I think it's it's a reasonable argument that the treaty wasn't a democratic choice that the British offered the treaty under the threat of immediate and terrible war and the Irish the Southern Irish electorate were given the choice of accepting the treaty or engaging in a much greater conflict. Again you can argue how much the British were bluffing. You can argue about how realistic that was. Um, But this does qualify the argument about whether or not the civil war is about democracy. Mm -hmm. And there certainly are people on the anti treaty side who aren't concerned about politics or democracy without slandering Rory O'Connor He does say in early 1922 that he doesn't really understand the political arguments about the treaty and that in some countries armies have had to step in when politicians have gone wrong. And when he's asked does that mean a military dictatorship, he says you can take it that way if you want. You do have that element but you also have anti-democratic elements on the pro-treaty side who if they'd run into trouble would have imposed a military dictatorship but of course they would have thought they'd have been doing it with the wishes of the Irish people in 1922. no, Duffy
0: for example, he's not kind of democratic? (laughs) No he isn't,
1: of course he isn't and he's not the kind of maverick in some ways that he seems in the politics of the time. And eminently respectable pro-treaty figures in the 30s flirt with fascism. So I don't think it's quite as simple as to say that since 1922 the IRA has been anti-democratic. I think what they've always argued is that the democratic will of the Irish people has been thwarted, whether it's by the threat of immediate and terrible war or whether it's by partition and therefore you couldn't have a really democratic choice under the conditions that the British had imposed in 1922. The reality is, of course, that again and again what you find is that they want popular support, but at the same time they're prepared to defy the popular will because they think they have the right to. And then sometimes they'll go back and eventually decide, well, maybe the only way to get popular support is is to accept some degree of the legitimacy of the state. De Valera, Frank Aiken, and others, why did they become democratic so quickly? Partially it's because they didn't think that they were anti-democratic in the first place. and and you can show up examples of where it doesn't seem to make sense or it seems hypocritical for Republicans to suddenly talk about mandate democracy. But the fact is that they don't see themselves necessarily as a force that's above the Irish people. They do hope that there is going to be a mandate for what they do. Again, they might look at 1916 and think that eventually people will retrospectively back you. That being said, of course, a lot of what they do is anti-democratic because it doesn't have any kind of popular legitimacy but it can be justified in terms of Republican ideology.
0: What you're constantly seeing is people who walk the Republican high road for a while they come down off it and they go into mainstream politics Hmm. and then they condemn the people who do what they used to do. We see this over and over again.
1: On one level it's obviously so blatantly opportunistic that it's it's hard not to be amused by it, even though it's very serious. So when Martin McGuinness, for example, condemned the uh, bomb attack in Derry a couple of months ago and he said that people who carried out the bomb attack are conflict junkies, are Neanderthals, it's hard not, from a historical point of view, to find that bizarre, given that Martin McGuinness, as part of the IRA, destroyed Derry City Centre and levelled it and made it look like it had been bombed from the air in the early 1970s. And at a human cost in terms of thousands of, of ordinary people in Derry, not only their lives disrupted, but terrified out of their wits by this bombing campaign. The bomb attack a couple of months ago caused nothing like that damage or nothing like that level of disruption, just in purely human terms. But in many ways, Martin McGuinness or other Republicans, to judge whoever claims to be the IRA now, it's too dangerous to go there because if you really read into what you're condemning these people for and then you examine the legitimacy or popular support that you had at particular stages, it might lead you to conclusions that you don't want, which might be that really most of the time you never had a mandate for your campaign either. And I think it's much easier then for both Republicans who take the mainstream route and Republicans who reject them to see things completely in terms of personality and betrayal. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that Michael Collins maybe sits down and thinks, this isn't such a bad deal. And anyway, what's the Republic? How many people do I represent who actually have ever thought out what an Irish Republic is supposed to be? Most of these people were home rulers three years ago, so why not accept this 26-county state? And, you know, I've got my other plans about the North in the long run. You see it instead in terms of he's been bought off in London. Instead of saying that Gerry Adams realises in the 1980s that Sinn Féin's political support has reached a plateau in the North and is actually beginning to decline, that they're not going to overtake the SDLP and that in the South they're going to be stuck on 2% while there is an armed struggle ongoing and decides well actually maybe there's another way of pursuing this you say oh well he's got a nice cottage in Duddy Gaul now, and he gets invited to Washington and, and that's why he, he gives up you had a movement which had a certain degree of popular support but was stuck an armed struggle that had gone on for a long time and that people were tired of and weary of, that even among communities that supported it, supported gritted teeth, that people didn't particularly like a lot of things the IRA did. And there was a way out, and that way out might offer political success as well. So I think that explains in some ways the, the decisions that Republican leaderships take at various
0: stages, more than simply the narrative of betrayal.